Hi, Derek. Hey, Sean. What's up? Not much. What you been working on lately? I upgraded a few apps to 5.1. How did that go? Fine. I think the only thing I really had to wait for was Simple Form because it had some things that needed to change, and I waited a couple weeks, and Simple Form was ready, and so I was able to upgrade. I really liked, I tweeted about this, but I was pleasantly surprised. Like, I did the upgrade, and the upgrade was fine, shipped the upgrade, everything was working, and then, like, it came time for me to write a migration, and I wrote a migration, and the entire schema file changed, and I was like, what has happened? And I looked at it, and they got rid of the part where they try and align all of the options in the schema file, which is fantastic because it means, like, if you add a column that has, like, a null-false as the first column that has a null-false in this table... Like, not every line of that table changes. You can actually just see, oh, this is what changed, Yeah, uh, which is pretty awesome. I've seen a couple people gripe that, like, they like being able to look just straight down and see, like, oh, all these things say no false or whatever. But uh, I mean, I very much like the diff better. Yeah. So it's a machine generated file meant to be consumed by machines. If you want, like, the pretty aligned for human consumption listing of all of the attributes on a model, like attributes API. (laughs) Or Postgres, psql, describe. Sure, or dump the tables. Yeah, and then we did run into one bug on ThoughtBot.com, which was interesting. ThoughtBot.com is mostly like our just general marketing site, but as you can imagine, as a Rails development shop, we have a lot of subdomains that are also Rails apps. Or some are not Rails apps. Some are some are just uh, actually like vanity redirects to like third-party services, like we have a Tumblr and things like that that we host on a subdomain, or we redirect to from a subdomain. Mm-hmm. So we upgraded to Rails 5.1, and soon after that, people who were not involved in the upgrade realized, like, um, I used to be able to go to calendar.thoughtbot.com, and it would take me to my, like, Thoughtbot Google Calendar, and now it's, like, giving me an error. What is right. happening? And so, like, we couldn't really put two and two together. Like, that's weird. And some people were like, eh, it still works for me. We're like, what? That's totally weird. It doesn't work for me. Uh, I don't know. And then uh, couple, like these things kept happening on like weird subdomains like that. And we traced it down to in Rails 5.1, a change was made to how HSTS headers are set, which um, HTTP security transport something. I don't remember. Yeah, something like that. Basically, it's a way for a web server to say, hey, next time you browser request a page on my site and the user has not specified a protocol, default to HTTPS, right? think that's a um almost right but it's only <laughs> it's ignored unless that header is also sent over https right right so basically if you have a site that redirects all http traffic to https traffic a good practice is to also set the hsts header to say and next time you request something from me do it over https so you don't accidentally send and send any cookies in the clear or whatever right. and those cookies should have https only on anyway but anyway So in Rails 5.1, a change was made to that so that the way that is set also includes all subdomains of that domain. Mm -hmm. And this was a change that was actually warned about in 5.0. So if you were running running this in 5.0 in your production logs, you'll see a bunch of warnings that say like, hey, you haven't told us what to do about subdomains in your HSTS configuration. So uh, by the way, in Rails 5.1, we're going to change it so that it defaults to protecting subdomains as well. And because we don't run with HTTPS in development mode, only our production config has HTTPS enabled, nobody saw those warnings. (laughs) So I was thinking about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole thing about, like, in general, things that are likely to only affect production. You know, what could we do in those deprecation phases? But in this particular instance, is there anything bad? Like, what actually happens if you enable HTTPS in development? Because you're not going to a domain, and there's no protocol. 
There's a protocol. When you go to localhost, it's still HTTP. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to, you still have to, I mean, how does it know you're not trying to ping it? Because <laughs> it's a browser. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, yeah, I guess it is HTTP. Yeah. So what happens if you go to HTTPS localhost? It doesn't work because it's not listening on those ports. Oh, right. Okay, never mind. So, yeah, that doesn't work, does it? So, yeah, no. so it's fine. It's like, okay, I see that this is really only going to be a problem for people who run their main, like, website at their main, like, root domain website as a Rails app and also host these, like, vanity redirects. Where And so the issue, the reason why vanity redirects don't work in that case is you can't then immediately, I'm going to get this wrong. I, I understood this yesterday. But basically, you can't, if I make a request to one of those vanity subdomains, and the browser has cached HSTS settings for that domain, it will not allow that browser to then redirect to something that's not on the host name that it was requesting. Really? Something like that, and I might be able to look something up in the show notes to more adequately describe it. Basically, it wasn't... We couldn't then redirect from calendar.thoughtbot.com to, you know, whatever the Google Calendar URL ends up being for yeah. our thing. Like they, they, we were able to make some changes on our side to the way that we handle the redirect that 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 worked, but there are other services for which we can't do that. Uh, so we're working on what to do about that because it is nice to just say, yeah, everything on the subdomain HSTS enabled, we're good. Right. That's actually the behavior we want. That's a good thing. So I'm like, in general, I'm okay with this change, but it, it highlighted one of the like last. I think that's one of the last great differences between production and development environments for a lot of people, other than the hardware it's running on. Um, that really can make a big difference when you go to production is all of a sudden now you have HTTPS uh, enabled. And I've struggled with it a little bit when doing clearance development because there are certain settings in clearance that, like there's one setting for setting a cookie to secure only, mm -hmm. right? Which means, or not, I guess it's secure. I forget, I forget what the, some of the cookie it's name. Called secure. It is called secure, okay. So when you set that, it says it tells the browser to only send that cookie to the server if the connection is over HTTPS. And so ideally, I'd like to default that to on, just as like you shouldn't be setting your session identifier cookie over HTTP because then you have the fire sheep thing happen. And we'll link to that in the show notes if you're not familiar with what that is. But I can't do that because in development mode, that wouldn't work. The, co the cookie you wouldn't sure. be able to sign in at all because you're never connecting over HTTPS usually. So instead, what I kind of rely on is that people will know that in production, they should have config.forceSSL set. And if they do that, all cookies automatically get upgraded to secure. Yeah. So I'm kind of relying on that. And then the fallback is if you don't do that, then hopefully you see the documentation that says you should be setting this. You should be setting the clearance option to set this particular cookie to secure only. I mean, couldn't you just default the setting to rails.m.production? Yeah, and I will put a link to a PR in the show notes where I did that, and there was some discussion about, like, well, now you're introducing a difference in the way a gem behaves in production versus in development. Is that better than the way the entire system behaves, like changing the way the entire system behaves versus in development Well, and I mean, do you have, like, a generate clearance install type thing? Yes, and it generates an initializer, which generally is, it, like, tells it, like, the, I think the only thing we generate in there is, like, the mailer, who are emails from. Basically. Sure. But I mean, it seems like that initializer would be a decent place to set that kind of default. That's a good point. Yeah. But there's other things, right? So there's there's still other things that vary. And this is one of like the thing that we talked right. about earlier is one of the things that just varies between development and production based on almost always that HTTPS thing being different is one of the few things I, I feel like are kind of are remaining. 
I agree with you. I think it's a good change, but that's what I find interesting is like, right, so how do we go about deprecating it? Because the problem wasn't the change. The problem was that nobody saw the deprecation warnings because they only appeared in production. Right. And you made the point when we were talking about this briefly before the show that like, if you watched a Heroku deploy, the warning was probably output there because the, right. the app has to start to compile assets. Right. You know, you're right that nobody's going to look at that. It's git push Heroku master and get coffee. Right. And come back and did it work? Yep, it worked. Okay. Right. <laughs> and that output is way up at the top. One of the things I was thinking about is should it have just erred? No. Why not? Because it's a deprecation. Like making it just error would be a breaking change between versions with no deprecation cycle, which we disallow. But that was basically what this was, right? Because you're saying nobody saw the warning anyway. So I now would rather find ways change. to make sure people see the warning. <laughs> I mean, it's it's less bad in this case because if if nothing else, the error would always be raised to app boot. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like the first thing you would have tried to do is run the app locally, and it it also could have just failed. Lo- I wonder if it could have just failed locally. No, because this is under the configuration for the rack SSL thing, right? So, well, this is what I was I was wondering is like, could we maybe inspect your your config for all environments when you boot in development mode, specifically just to look for deprecation warnings, like have some sort of sandboxed area where those configs get evaluated? Because and... well, in, th- in in theory, those configs should not actually mutate anything other than the config option. So, like, it should be safe to just run them. I bet there it's just a Ruby file though, so I bet there's a lot of people who are doing things in there that you maybe might but not if expect. it's not in like an initializer block then right. i try and leave those config files as bland as they possibly can be and then do everything in initializer files but right um, which i think is what rails has been encouraging over the years as they move more and more stuff out to initializers right and then at that point we end up with like okay so now you have you're setting this config option in if rails.m.production in an initializer at which point there's no way <laughs> yeah we've also been trying like as a general rule at ThoughtBot, trying to move away from like if rail, checking rails.m dot whatever and relying on something else instead. Like some like if this is present at all, like if uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Like this one you would set only if force SSL is true. Right. Yep. You wouldn't check the environment. You would check the configuration to say like, is, is this true then? Right. So anyway, that was interesting. It didn't really like cause like, you know, ThoughtBot.com didn't go down. Just sure. these other ancillary little things that didn't particularly matter to us went down and we figured it out. And I mean, I'm assuming the fix was to tell it not to include subdomains? For now, yes. And then there's other people that were... I kind of found out about this a few days after the fact, but all of a sudden I was like, hey, calendar works again. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious how... Because you have to actually like flush your browser and operating system's DNS cache to get rid of that, right? Yes. So there was... I don't know what the TTL was for the HSTS setting. But the brief conversation I had about it once I became involved was basically like, we're leaving it off for a few days to let caches kind of flush. And then we're going to re-enable it how we want it to be, basically with a lower TTL and things like that. Right. And actually, one of the reasons that conversation came up to me was, uh, you know, A, I was able to use Calendar again, but also there was a tool that came across my Twitter feed called Pushed, I guess is how you would say it. I don't know. P-S-H-T-T. And the idea is like you pointed at, I pointed it at thoughtbot.com and ran this tool. It's like a, it's written in Python. So you just pip install it and then run it and give it a domain. And it tells you various things about how HTTPS is configured on that domain. Like, does it redirect HTTP to HTTPS? Does it set HSTS headers? Things like that. Does the HS, right. do HSTS headers include subdomains? And I was surprised to find that's when I found that thoughtbot.com was not setting HSTS at all. And I was like, that's really weird because I'm pretty sure that's a default of 
config.force.ssl. And I got really worried that we weren't doing that. Uh, and then that's when I stumbled on this earlier conversation about... Uh, about calendar being broken? About cal- well, I, I knew calendar was broken because I was having that conversation with people before. But I discovered the earlier conversation about uh, the HSTS headers that we were talking about. So There's a really good tool by uh, Mozilla as well called Observatory where you just give it a domain and it'll um, give you basically a security best practices ranking. Also, the I'll bet what it was... Because HSTS, I can't find anything that says that it involves redirects, but I'll bet, because there's also a um, header that you can set that basically sets a redirect policy of make sure that the host is the same. Yeah, maybe. I'll bet it was just ha- both of those headers being set and the redirect policy only affecting HTTPS requests. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm scrolling back in Slack to see like my, my questions about this very same matter, and it was like, I just asked, like, can calendar dot thoughtbot.com redirect to the HTTPS domain instead of redirecting to the HTTP domain, and wouldn't that just work? Uh, and the response was, it can do that, but with HSTS subdomains, that doesn't work for whatever reason. I didn't really dig into that. Hmm. So I think it has to, at that point, it has to redirect to the same, like your HTTP request has to redirect to the same host or something like that. Not quite, yeah. not, ti- not entirely sure. This is over my head at this point, but uh, yeah. Anyway, watch out for that if you're upgrading your Rails app. Just, yep. It's a simple configuration you can undo if that's really going to impact you, but I imagine for the most part it's not. Yeah, it just sucks though because if if you get bit by it, you can potentially like screw up your domain for a year. Yeah, I don't know what the default TTL is on whatever the config force SSL does. Yeah, I'm not sure what the default is either. But if it, I'm just saying, if the TTL were a year and like having HSTS include subdomains for you does break something, like this is actually rather destructive. Yeah. And more or less impossible to fix. Yay! <laughs> so, like... Well, I mean, the fix would be to make all your domains work with HSTS, which is probably what you well, want sure. anyway. Sure, but I mean, in terms of, like, if you... This is just one of those, though, if you deploy it and the behavior happen and you don't notice for a day or two the change in behavior, right, for all of the users who are already affected by receiving the, the new HSTS header. Right. If you want to just make your app work again for those people, there's not a quick fix, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and these kind of dev prod parity deprecation issues, I think I feel like they're pretty rare, especially now that the asset pipeline is much more strict in development mode. Because I think that was where most of those came up was yeah. with changes in behavior in the asset pipeline. And nowadays, I think there it's pretty rare for us to deprecate something that would only affect certain environments. But it would be nice if we had a better way to make sure that people were seeing those in development. Right. While we were talking, I did just look up so. It was easier for me to find the source for Rack SSL, which is not what Rails is doing. I didn't know where in Rails to find the actual middleware that Rails uses, but it's based largely on Rack SSL. Sure. And the Rack SSL default is actually a year, interestingly enough. And Rack yeah. SSL still, still defaults to subdomains false. So, other 5.1 stuff I found nice uh, encrypted secrets. I started using encrypted secrets, and it was really nice. <laughs> yeah. It's a little weird workflow that like you have to edit it by running this command and then it, when you save it, it writes. And I was immediately like, oh, I wonder if I could get like a Vim plugin that just let that just does this for me when I edit this file. Mm-hmm. Nothing exists yet, but somebody will, by me saying it, hopefully somebody that knows Vim will do it for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was nice because particularly right now I'm working in an environment that's n- we're deploying to not Heroku and getting things into the environment is kind of difficult because I have to explain to somebody how to go about doing that. So instead, I logged onto the server, put this one key into the environment. Right. And then I can put everything else into this file that I can actually check into source control. 
and gets deployed automatically. So that was pretty nice. I don't know. My initial feelings on it was that it didn't add much over just using environment variables for configuration, but then people won't accidentally pull production database URL <laughs> and run tests. So there's that. Yeah, I could kind of go either way. I do kind of like just being able, I don't know. In this particular case, it was the reason I was like, let's just upgrade to Rails 5.1. Because I was like, I know it has this encrypted secret thing in it. If it works, it'll work great for our use case. So let's try it. And it worked. Yeah. And it was great. I mean, and, and Travis, when you want to set, you know, private environment variables, has basically the exact same workflow. And it works really, really well for CI. So I guess there's no reason that it should be a good thing for CI and a bad thing for normal yeah. key management. Yep. Um, by the way, the default TTL for HSTS and Rails is 180 days. Okay. All right. We can wait that up. <laughs> half a year yeah what else I guess I'm all aboard the Rails 5.1 train because I'm also using I mean I'm not using the system test case thing but I switched from using Capybara WebKit as my Capybara JavaScript driver to using Chrome driver as my JavaScript driver oh is that the new headless actually just in Chrome yeah so Chrome 59 is going to be headless that's not out yet it's okay. in, it's in the beta so you can grab that if you want but I was like oh, I'm just going to roll with just Chrome 58 and Selenium then? Yep. So it drives it's it's driven through Selenium and okay. it is pretty good. So the reason why I ultimately took the plunge there was A, like I knew that the writing's kind of on the wall for Capybara WebKit, I think, now that Headless is coming around with Chrome. And right. I think is it Phantom JS or Poltergeist. Poltergeist? Is it Poltergeist the, the guy's Poltergeist built on top which is built on top of Phantom JS. Okay. So somebody I think maybe it's Phantom JS, the author of Phantom JS basically said I'm no longer maintaining this because like, yeah. there's no point anymore yep. uh, with Headless coming around the corner. So I think that's probably also, I mean, I don't know. Joe maintains Capybara WebKit, so I, I have no idea. But I think that that's probably going to be the end of that, too, because I know it's a big, and, and the person maintaining PhantomJS will tell you, too, it's a big maintenance burden. Right. The allure of something like Capybara WebKit and PhantomJS was like, you can run it in a browser that nobody uses, right? And now you can run it in a browser that most of your users are probably using, if your users right. are like our users, or at least a good chunk of your users, regardless, are using. So that's nice. And right now I'm, I'm working in the environment. I don't have a lot of tests that require JavaScript, so only a few of them open a browser, and I can actually see the browser, which is actually a nice option to have at the very least, to be able to be like, just show me the test running so I can see right. what's happening. And I do. I did miss that every time I use Capybara WebKit from my old like using Firefox via Selenium web driver days uh, was the ability to just see the test running. And you used to be able to do it very easily because Capybara depended on Capybara Selenium or on Selenium web driver or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you needed to see the test, you could just quickly switch your driver. But that's no longer the case. It doesn't depend on it. So you have to actually put the Selenium web driver in your gem file in order to do that. And that was always a bridge too far for me. So just just to... <laughs> Changing one line, yeah. that's all right. Changing two lines, now this is too much of a hassle. Then I got to run bundle, then I got to undo it because clearly I don't want to check it in. I mean, I might as well have just checked it in so I had the option of switching the driver. But anyway, it's been nice. It's a little bit slower than running Capybara WebKit currently, I think. Right, well, because it has to render on screen. Right, and maybe when it's headless, it'll be just as fast. I don't know. Um, but there's definitely there's snippets out there if you want to run beta and you want to see it run headless or you want to see it not run headless. <laughs> uh <laughs> then you can do that but honestly like i use the mac os 10 or i guess i'm supposed to call it mac os now i use the terminal full screen and like the in the mac os full screen version and the web driver window doesn't steal focus so i don't actually see 
the tests running unless I switch over to my other desktop. Oh, so you can still use your computer when the tests are running non-headless? Yep. Huh. If I'm in legit full screen mode, not like I don't have the window maximized, but I'm in that like oh, special okay. full screen gotcha. mode in OS gotcha. 10. It doesn't still focus, which is nice. And also, like even if I'm back on my regular desktop and I have a Chrome window open, the Chrome driver window opens beneath my active Chrome window. So it doesn't it still doesn't steal focus huh. from Chrome itself, which is both nice and kind of a pain because I'm like waiting for the test to start up and I'm checking something in a browser and then they start up and I miss what I wanted to see because it didn't steal focus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been an interesting few weeks running with it. I like it. And uh, the straw that broke the camel's back was really that like I tried to install Capybara WebKit for the millionth time and it failed. And I was like... I'm done debugging these issues. Let's see if Chrome driver installs easier. And it was like, brew install Chrome driver. Done. And it was like, <laughs> it was like okay, we're just going to do this. And it worked. There's actually some interesting stuff in, in action system test or whatever the hell it ended up being called. Even if you you were already using Capybara. Like one of the things I thought was a really nice touch was that whenever a test fails, it takes a screenshot. Mm-hmm. It actually renders it in your terminal as well. That screenshot. Right. If your terminal is capable of doing such things, right. which I don't think the LS10 terminal is, but ter- iTerm2, which a lot of people use, I think does. And the first mm-hmm. time I saw that, I was I worked a little bit with Sam on trying to get the system test case or whatever they call it again. <laughs> it's got some weird name. Uh, getting like an example group in our spec for that to use that, which would be slightly different than feature specs because of the things we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and the first time we saw a failure where it printed a screenshot to the terminal, we both flipped out. We we're like, that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and that's then the other, uh, the other really big one is uh, it shares the connection between the server and the test, so you can continue to use transactions. You don't need database cleaner to, uh, and this is really important because we want to go to parallel test running by default yep. soon, uh, without requiring like Circle CI's weird segregate the test suite into multiple suites that are run on independent machines ac- across independent databases. Mm-hmm. Like it'll just be you can run your tests on multiple threads by default. And it works fine. Yeah, that will be awesome. I was wondering, I was going to ask if you knew. So is, that's a feature of the system test case, not a feature of Rails. Like that does not automatically happen if I'm using Capybara under Rails 5.1. I don't know if it automatically, I mean, it, it's possible to do without ac- uh, action system test because the main thing is just like the connections are shaped. They're, they're not necessarily thread safe in the general case, but for this particular case, they're reasonably thread safe. <laughs> reasonably thread safe. I have a feeling just there's some edge cases from, if nothing else, the code that makes it thread safe does not indicate at all that the purpose of it is to make it thread safe for this one instance. You're Mm -hmm. unlikely to ever have issues from thread safety in tests anyway, because basically the only time your server would ever be executing code and utilizing the connection is when the test is blocked on a response from the server. Mm -hmm. The only time you'd get the race condition right is if it was like an AJAX request with JavaScript while your test is also doing something to the database. And that'll definitely hit a mutex and be fine. Cool. Anyway, I don't know if it's configured that way. I think you probably have to do additional configuration to make sure that the server and the tests are using the same connection. But yeah, I've been I kept database cleaner around for well, actually I, I had to add it for this, but I I added it just for I don't know. I was like I'm not going to mess with that now. I know database cleaner works, so I'm just going right. to do that. Yeah. And no, then, I mean, if you're not using system tests, like you should use right. database cleaner. That's kind of what I figured. So I'm looking forward to when our spec gets a system test group somehow. I thought it already shipped. Did it ship? Uh, last I saw, there was a branch, an in-progress branch, but... I could be wrong. Let's look it up. Sam knows. He's yelling the answer right now while he's listening to this podcast. Yeah, no, I was just thinking I'm going to get like a DM from Sam <laughs> saying it's not out yet with no context in like three weeks. There's a work-in-progress PR, which we will link to in the show notes. Number 1813 on our spec rails. 
It's got a bunch of to-dos. It's just kind of sitting out there. Action Dispatch System Test is what it was called. Ah, uh, that's the name. Cool. Yeah. So I, I managed to put aside some time to get back into the weeds with Diesel for a little bit yesterday. Because, you know, have I told you about the whole thing where we limit, you can basically only join to two tables ever? I think we've discussed this. <laughs> it's funny. I, for whatever reason, I was looking through some really old commits and like commit number nine to Diesel. Hold on. Let me let me pull. I've got I've got the link around here because the commit message is just really funny. So the last paragraph is like, this currently requires that all columns be from the same table. Once I prove out what joins look like in the type system, I should be able to also state that a column from either side of a join is considered a column for the join. Unresolved question, will this be transitive when I join multiple times? That was two years ago. <laughs> and that question is still unresolved. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. Like, I've done a lot of refactoring to how joins work in Diesel over the last couple of months. And I ended up like realizing I have the exact same problem I had before, but it's just now moved and kind of stated differently, which was just funny. But I realized that I was sort of ignoring a deeper issue that was so basically the problem came down to I have this trait called selectable expression. Mm -hmm. So a column is a selectable expression for its table. And then what I want to be able to say is a column is a selectable expression for a table on the left side of a join, and a column is a selectable expression from a table on the right side of a join. But the issue is I can't write that in Rust because those two those two overlap, particularly mm -hmm. if a table were joined to itself, which is like, OK, but I don't make it possible for you to join a table to itself. So that's not an issue. So I really just want these to I want to allow these two to overlap because the overlap case doesn't matter to me. So it used to be the way we worked around it was for each column individually when we know the names of two tables. Like I say, user's ID is selectable from a join between users and posts. User's ID is selectable from a join between posts and users. And I do that for every column, for every table, when you define the association, and it was really ugly. Uh, in the most recent version, what we do is, in the table definition, we now say, for each individual column, this is selectable from a join where the left side is users and the right side is something that we can join to. And then this specific column is selectable from a join where the right side is users, and these are two tables that we can join to. And those don't overlap because at the point where that's defined, we know that users does not join to itself. Okay. So then the problem is you try to expand that. So if you were to kind of like brute force it and give one specific case, because this ends up like growing as a Cartesian product. So you want something that isn't for every specific case. But if we were to just narrow it down to, okay, so now I want to additionally add this specific column from the users table is selectable from a join where the left table can join to the middle table and the middle table can join to users and users is the far right of this three table join. And ultimately... The problem lies in for that to be valid, for that to not overlap where the left table is users and it can join to the right table. I have to prove now that left is not users because the case where this this all falls apart is users dot join posts dot join users. OK, where it's like nested, right? It's like yep. if it was a hash. The key is posts and the value is users if you were passing this to include. So you're eager loading the users for the posts. Yep. Of course, you wouldn't want to do that. Maybe a, a more realistic example would be like, User joins to posts, joins to comments, joins to user. Yep. So you want the user that left the comment, which is not necessarily the top level user, yep. which I also just want to disallow because for that query to be valid, it needs to be aliased. Mm -hmm. And I'm fairly certain that if when I do add a story for aliasing in Diesel, it's going to involve like the alias being declared ahead of time and being a distinct type. So that way I always, in a where clause, know specifically whether you're referencing the first appearance of the user's table or the second appearance of the user's table. Right. But that was really interesting. Like this whole time, I thought the problem was I just need these to overlap and it'll be fine. 
and actually, the t- well, at first I'm like, oh, this is so cool. The type system was telling me, no, if you do that, you're going to cause a problem for yourself. And that's not really true. Like the place where the type system is disallowing this incidentally overlaps specifically with a feature that I want to disallow. But that's not necessarily like a property of this. It's, it's more of a coincidence than anything else. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turns out that like, I don't know that I have a good way to solve this. I ended up for a little while like adding an additional marker trait that's just these two types are not equal and adding that constraint where left type not equal users. Rust doesn't in its type system give you a way to specifically say where this type is not equal to this other type. But I could do it with this trait as long as I implement this trait for every two combination of types that will ever appear. Um, (laughs) Which of course I couldn't do but I'm like okay well just whenever I define whenever I see an association being defined I'll say okay here I can see two tables. These two tables aren't equal I know that now. And I was like, oh, cool, this is going to work. And then I tested it out. It was like, this doesn't work because there's no evidence that users is not equal to comments. Because mm-hmm. I, I hadn't declared an association between them ever. I was just doing the three table users to post to comments. Uh, I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. Okay, well, like, I'll just add these two lines manually just so I can see if this even works. And it did. And I was really frustrated because I didn't want to force people to add these two lines to make multi-table joins work. But then I realized that that this only works when I'm scoping it to like the parent child grandchild flow. If I then also increase it to like parent child sibling, where the left side isn't necessarily a table, the left side could also be a join. Now this whole thing falls apart. And what I actually need is a way to say this specific column from the users table is selectable from a query source where the users table appears inside of it exactly once. Or and then for a join that would be you know, I'd impl- implement if table appears once for join left, right, where left contains table once and right does not contain table. Right. And that requires basically two things. It requires a the compiler to me to be able to express to Rust that contains table once and does not contain table are mutually exclusive, which is not a feature that the language has today. And it would also require me implementing does not contain table like that does not contain table is basically type not equal. So I have the same problem of I need to implement this for every every combination of two types in the system. And that's there's actually a feature in the language called opt-in built-in traits, which is a terrible name because they're neither opt-in nor are, is it necessarily limited to built-in traits. But it's the idea of a trait that is automatically implemented for a type if every field on that type also implements it. And so if your type would otherwise implement it and you don't want to implement this this trait, you have to explicitly opt out of it. And so there's two traits in the language that fall into this category. They're called send and sync. And they are just whether something is safe to be sent between threads and then whether something is safe to be uh, shared across threads simultaneously. And so I could totally use, we call them oibits for short. We could, I, could, uh, I could make type not equal an oibit, um, <laughs> but oibits are likely to never be stable. Mm-hmm. So... I'm in this like weird place where I've realized now that what I thought was my initial solution actually will allow incorrect queries to compile. Mm. But the path where I just allow, you know, where I allow this overlap, and if a table joins to itself, that compiles and just fails at runtime, that path has like is likely to work on stable Rust in the near future. Whereas the actual ensure that that a table does not join to itself, you know, through however many layers of recursion. I don't know that there's any path right now of features in the language being planned that will lead to this working on stable Rust. So when you say make sure a table does not join to itself in any layers of recursion, what you really mean is join to itself as itself? Right. Basically, if the user's table appears because I don't have any form of aliasing, 
like right. I know it, it can only appear as itself. So basically making sure a table doesn't appear in a from clause more than once. Why can't I join users to users? Like maybe I join users to a subselect of users, but I guess that requires aliasing as well. Right. Yeah. I right. mean, it's a valid thing to want to do. It's just not a, it's not a thing I support. Right. And I'm sort of operating under the assumption that aliases will involve creating a new type, which like represents the user's table, but is considered in the type system distinct from the user's table. It is an independent type that just happens to represent the same underlying set of data. That makes sense. Because otherwise I have like no way of knowing if you do, if you then say like where users.name equals Derek, yep. I have no way of knowing which instance of users you're referring to and whether or not I need to apply the alias. Right. That is an assumption. I've not really figured out how we're going to do aliases. Hopefully we end up going down that route because if, if we don't, then like, Maybe I should just figure out aliases before I solve this because what we do for aliases does impact the possible solutions for the multi-table join problem. But yeah, I don't know. It was sort of like a weird emotional roller coaster yesterday of this problem I've been trying to figure out for two years. I thought I had almost solved it. And then I thought, and I'm like, oh crap, my solution almost works but doesn't quite work, which got me really excited. Cause I'm like, well, if it almost works, I can probably figure out a workaround for this last little thing. And then when I expand the problem back to the full scope, it just, it all falls apart. Yep. Burn it all down. Yeah. Forget it. It was, it was, it was literally like... It was a good run. I, I shipped like <laughs> 20 lines of, of refactoring that was like groundwork for it and then and then scrapped the entire rest of the day's work. Which I do quite a bit, but it's it always feels kind of crappy. Good run for Diesel. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Diesel's done. <laughs> Never having multi-table joins. Yeah, yeah. So this is my problem. When I come across something like that, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to work on this anymore. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like this seems hard, and I'm not quite sure how to do, how to handle it. And I'm doing it for free for a bunch of people, and I don't particularly have a need myself for it right now. So it's just gonna sit here. Oh, I mean, I definitely <laughs> need multi-table joins. I have queries that would be better off if they could join to multiple tables. Okay, well then, if I had a distinct need, then I would have better faith in myself anyway to actually do that work. I do suspect that most people who think that they need multi-table joins don't actually need multi-table joins. How so? Usually, if you're joining to a table, you're joining for one of two reasons. You're joining because you want the data from both tables, or you're joining because you want to filter one table right. based off of some property of the other. Right. What I actually want is records from table A that have a corresponding record in table B, or something like that. And then interjoin does that for me. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that works really well for one-to-one. -one. Right. And then for one-to-many, it's... Right. You have a subselect or something. I don't know. But still, if you're so if you're just trying to do what an interjoin would do for you, you can just do where exists select one from other table where the yep. property of the join, and like that's just as efficient. And sometimes the query planner will make that actually more efficient. It will not do a subselect in a loop. It will notice, oh hey, this is actually just like a hash aggregate, and do more. If you look at the query plan, the query plan is not identical to if you do an interjoin, but you can see in the query plan it's doing effectively the same thing that it does from an interjoin. So like it really is only if you need to join to this table for filtering purposes and you want the data from both the tables. Because if you want if you just want the data from both tables, it's almost always more efficient to do it as two queries, at least when you have more than two tables involved. Because the extra round trip time usually outweighs the extra duplication of data that's sent over the wire when you're joining to more than one table. And I just don't think that it's really that common to like want a parent and all of its child records and all of its and all of the grandchild records of that and then want to filter the parent based on some property of the grandchild. <laughs> like I think the cases where you where you want the filtering and you want the data from the other table like it's basically universally limited to two tables 
almost universally. Find me all the posts by Derek that have comments by Sean. Right, and then it, but then is it uh... all the po- all of Derek's posts? So that's I want to join to the post user. Yeah, I guess that it's, have I comments guess it's by Sean. Reasonable that you would it's want. It's still not you know it's down on the list of features I'm going to build in the blogging engine that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <Yeah>, right. <laughs> well, then it's just, but then that only needs to be a three-table join if you then also want to load the data from the users. Right. Like I want Sean's actual name. You know that kind of thing. Which that's that is a good example of a case where you would want that. Yeah. My point being, though, not that they don't exist, just that they are rarer than people think. And I think maybe part of the reason that um, I end up having to argue these points is just because I put it a little bit more in your face in diesel than uh, whether or not something's being done as multiple queries than active record does. Yep. I try and nudge you towards what is the, the best thing from a performance point of view or not even necessarily what is all because the only way to know is actually the best for a given query is to do a lot of explain, analyze and benchmark. But, uh, you know, I try and nudge people towards what is going to for the majority of queries be the most performant and or maintainable thing. Mm-hmm. But I make you aware of what that trade-off is more so than other places. So I think then people are like, "Wait, this isn't joining. This is doing multiple queries. That's that's less efficient." <laughs> I don't particularly worry too much about that. I only like in Railsland, all I'm doing is making sure I'm not making any queries once the page starts rendering. Right. If I start make if I start doing queries, then then I'm worried. But other than that, if it's doing five queries versus doing eight queries, like honestly, if I start looking at it, I'm like, I want it to do five queries. But if I just don't look at it it's never really a problem sure uh, unless you're loading like an insane amount of data or something like that well and that's the thing and if you are loading an insane amount of data eight queries might actually be better than five queries because yeah. <laughs> doing it five queries might actually send more data over the wire which depending on the specific characteristics of the network that that's being sent over might actually lead to more round trips at the tcp level than it would have to have just done separate queries mm-hmm. yeah all right um, well i'm sorry about diesel um <laughs> I know you put a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was funny. Just afterwards, I, I I had a few beers, and then one of the people who works with the Rust team, I don't remember what exact teams he's on, but he's on teams and uh, does a lot of the more esoteric stuff with the type system that I that I tend to play around with. And so I started IMing him and just being like, please, <laughs> give me a way to solve this. <laughs> please tell me you have some secret trick that I don't know about. <laughs> Something that's coming out very soon. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck chasing that one down. Yeah. I'm always wishing you luck. You always come through. So maybe or maybe in two years we'll be talking about how it still hasn't happened. (laughs) And it turns out nobody needed multi-table joins anyway, so it's fine. Right. (laughs) All right. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 114. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>